listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, the man who we just read about there who rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name. And as we go through this letter of 1 Peter, we're calling this series Chosen Sojourners. This is a letter written to the persecuted church that is packed with truth about your life in Christ. And we're seeing three key themes again and again through this series, Chosen Sojourners. We're seeing that Jesus, number one, is our living hope. In this life, we all face present suffering. And also, thirdly, we are not, it's not going to end there. This, this suffering and pain won't last forever. One day we'll be reunited with him and we will, we will see him face to face. And we are eagerly anticipating future glory. And before I personally take an extended break uh, from preaching for a few weeks, um, and I come back at the end of July to finish this series. This morning, we're going to finish 1 Peter chapter 4. And in many ways, today's message is a summarization. It's really a capstone of everything Peter has been teaching. If you trace it all the way, you could trace it all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, about suffering for righteousness' sake. And whenever you're talking about suffering, like we have been for the last few weeks, and really this entire series, it does get heavy. Now, I have a slightly different take on the message this morning than my usual take. I'm a big believer in exegetical preaching. Draw the truth out of Scripture and teach the main point of whatever the passage is teaching. And then I, I like to use all of my subpoints to support that main point, that big idea. But I'm going to definitely keep you on your toes today because I'm not going to do exactly that. I was talking with Lee about this on, on Monday morning. As soon as I got into this passage and started studying it and praying through it and meditating on it, I could not shake this very, very strong urge and really movement of the Spirit to switch it up. And rather than preaching the core main message of this passage as the main point of my message, Instead, I'm going to preach a sermon on one of the applicational subpoints that support the big idea. And this all goes back to one of the greatest paradoxes in the Christian faith. Have you ever thought about how many paradoxes there are in Scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Our faith in Jesus Christ could not have could never have been created in a man-made lab like every other religion. <laughs> One of the reasons for that is because there are so many paradoxes in Scripture. A couple of summers ago, I preached a sermon. Uh, we were doing a summer song series through the book of Psalms, and I preached a sermon from Psalm 8, where we are small and weak, but at the same time, through the power of Christ and in God's sight, we are strong and mighty. And Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is absolutely full of paradoxes, 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew 16, 25. Matthew 19, 30, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than receive. Going back to quoting Jesus. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see all these paradoxes? That's 2 Corinthians 12. If you want to lead, then you serve. If you want to become free, then you become a slave. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to become rich, you have to become poor. If you want to be victorious, you have to surrender. The entirety of the Christian life is a complete paradox. And then there's the ultimate paradox, and that is Jesus, the sinless Savior, became sin for us. So, so much of our life in Christ seems contradictory, and that's because our faith is spiritual. It's beyond us. It doesn't make sense when looking at it from a purely physical or scientific or logical perspective. It's not something that we can wrap our minds around. And the angle that we're going to take this morning strikes the heart of the albatross of all of the paradoxes in the New Testament. It's not the greatest one. The greatest one is Jesus Christ becoming sin for us. But it is perhaps the the hardest one to accept and to grasp and to relish. And it's this one. Suffering is something to rejoice in. One of the paradoxes in Scripture that we see again and again, we've been seeing throughout this series, is to rejoice in suffering. So would you please read 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19 with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's what we just read. If you break it all down, what the text is saying this morning, I have a graph for you that I'm going to put up here on the screen. Why should you rejoice in Scripture? There's six reasons why that I just read. Number one, suffering refines you. That's in verse 12. Secondly, suffering unites you with Jesus, verse 13. Suffering invites God's presence, verse 14. Suffering has the potential to bring God glory, verses 15 and 16. Suffering prepares you for future glory, and suffering moves you to trust God. Those all center around why you should rejoice in suffering. 
And if I was preaching through this series like I normally do, I would take all of this content and I would craft into what's called a homiletical outline. This is how I preach, how I communicate it, where we take the one main point and then we create applicational subpoints that support and enhance that truth. It's the very next slide if you want to just go to that. It's going to be small for you to see, but, but the main idea is why you should rejoice in suffering. And there it all is. So you take that and then you say, what's the main idea? Here's the next slide. Trust your faithful creator in the midst of present suffering. That's the big idea. And the three things that support that is, number one, expect suffering and don't be surprised or ashamed when it happens, verses 12 through 13. Rejoice that you were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Glorify God through every trial he brings your way. Number three, all of those things are teaching us how we can trust our faithful God in the midst of suffering. And that's your classic doxa sermon outline right there. You see it. Preaching the word this way is powerful because it teaches you the effectiveness of Scripture. It builds your confidence in the word of God. It's authoritative. It's not my opinion. I'm preaching the message of Scripture. But at the same time, preaching the word of God, even though I love to, I love to preach that way, it's bigger than any one method. <laughs> and I can't ever just find one natural formula that I like and just stick with that every single week. Because as I dug into this passage and I prayed about it, God directed me to go to somewhere a little different this morning. And it's one of the applicational support points that I want to zero in on. It's point number one. Expect suffering and don't be surprised or ashamed. That's the piece that I want to spend the rest of the time on. And the thing that I just can't get over is how this truth could not be any more different than the message of the world's gay pride movement. According to the world, June is Pride Month. And this is something that has gotten progressively more aggressive and in your face every single year. And what started out as a few rainbow pins on baristas just a few years ago has turned into parades that have turned into a charade, pun intended, for grooming kids with indecent exposure. And the rainbow that was originally a gift of God promising that he will never again send a worldwide flood to destroy the earth, that same rainbow has been hijacked by a movement that is in rebellion with its creator. And, and a movement that is repeating the exact same things that caused God to judge the world with the flood. So the rainbow that's still a beautiful thing, now for the majority of Americans represents something that is antithetical to God's created order. And being in the middle of Pride Month, I couldn't help but see the completely polar opposite version of pride in this version of scripture. I'm calling this message Sojourner Pride. That's the next slide. That completely flies in the face of everything the world's pride celebrates. I want you to read verses 12 through 14 again with me. And this time, look for the concept of pride in these three verses. Look at this version of pride. Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And again, here's the verse that just struck me this week. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So if pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements and the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired, which is is exactly what the world is saying, are you starting to see how different Christian's pride looks and sounds? That's what we're going to dive into this morning. To rejoice in suffering is something that is foreign to a lost world. And to expect it and accept it and even embrace it because you know God is going to use it and you know that God will bring you closer to him and so that you can shine his love through that, that's radical. That's going against the flow. That's being different. And that's difficult because it's not applauded. To to do that is actually the brave thing. And it's also something that brings eternal change. And so before we go any further with this, I think it's very important to correctly define Pride Month from the world's perspective. So I'm going to read you a statement from youth.gov, which is written directly from the White House. June is LGBT Pride Month. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Pride Month is celebrated annually, annually in June to honor the 1969 Stonewall Riots, and works to achieve equal justice and equal opportunity for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning Americans. In June of 1969, patrons and supporters of the Stonewall Inn in New York City staged an uprising to resist the police harassment and persecution to which LGBT Americans were commonly subjected. This uprising marks the beginning of a movement to outlaw discriminatory laws and practices against LGBT Americans. Today, celebrations include pride parades, picnics, parties, workshops, symposia, and concerts, and LGBT Pride Month events attract millions of participants around the world. Memorials are held during this month for those members of the community who have been lost to hate crimes or HIV AIDS. The purpose of the commemorative month is to recognize the impact that LGBTQ individuals have had on history, locally, nationally, and internationally. Now, there's a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, who would read that and say, hey, what's the big deal? Let's not persecute these people. And they would just end it there. I think it's very important here to stress the obvious. True Christians don't hate. They love. If Christians are condemning, we are doing something that we're not supposed to do. We're doing it wrong. God will judge the wicked who have rebelled against him. He is righteous and holy, and he will punish every lost soul who refuses to bow the knee and repent of their sin, no matter what that sin is. 
If God just turned a blind eye and allowed everyone to just follow their passions, even if they are fallen passions, he would be inconsistent with his character and he would not be just. And that's impossible because God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, and he does not change. He is good because he will judge every form of wickedness, no matter how deluded or desensitized our conscience becomes. So if a Christian ever looks down on someone and mistreats anyone for a different belief, no matter what their intentions are, they are wrong and they're doing something that they were never told to do in Scripture. And when anyone mistreats or persecutes someone else who is different than them, no matter who it is, if you mock or demean or treat someone with nasty contempt, you are in sin and you're doing it wrong. So that's where this gets confusing. There have been people who have suffered. I would even go as far to say at times unjustly because of their sinful lifestyle. Just because that person is living in rebellion against God does not give you the right to be the judge, jury, and executioner. There's a better approach to take, and it's love. Real love. Real love doesn't forsake the truth either. And I need you to listen very closely to me here. Mistreatment has happened in the past, and it still does happen. Not nearly as often as before, but it happens. And whenever you mistreat people and condemn people and go outside the realm of love, like God has instructed you, you are going to get blowback. Those actions, even if well-intended, and if they're technically on the right side of the equation, can still be done without love, and then you're doing the right thing the wrong way. And when a lost person who is struggling with temptations from their fallen nature, their fallen sin nature, which, which is twisted and lies to them, and when those people who are struggling with that attempt to adopt a lifestyle around their fallen desires, and then when they are treated with discrimination, well, then you've added to the problem, not, not helped solve the problem and restore the broken. So an overarching truth here that's completely missing from the world's perspective on this is that you don't have to agree with someone to love them. You don't have to agree with someone on every single case, every single situation, to still love them. And we understand this concept in basically every other area of life. But why not in this area? That's a deep question that I could spend a lot of time on, but it all boils down to this. People have put their identity into their sexual desires. So if you don't accept that piece about them, they believe you're rejecting them because they've made that their identity. There's a pervasive lie that has removed God from the equation of our lives all around us. And if you remove God's authority from your life, there is a void. You were made for his glory. You were created to be in relationship with him, and you were designed to worship him. So if you don't worship God, you're still going to worship something else. And if you don't believe in your creator, you're going to believe in yourself or another idea that will eventually fall short and disappoint you. 
But this pervasive lie that you don't need God, that God is a nice idea that comforts some people, that lie has created a massive void in people's lives where they don't know their true identity. They don't know their beloved identity. They don't know their creator. And they're, bl they're blinded to their beloved identity by God. And they've replaced it with something else. So they make their identity their sexual cravings. And our enemy is the author of confusion. And he hates the home. So there's an attack on the home. And on, there's an attack on biblical masculinity and on biblical femininity. And when fathers are absent, there's a breakdown in God's plan. So those God-given concepts are under attack. And the lies are just everywhere in our culture, everywhere we look. I mean, it's subconsciously messaged into kids' cartoons. It's in education. It's, it's all of these half-truths. Love is love. And this concentrated attack is bearing horrific fruit. And there's rampant confusion that the church in general just doesn't talk enough about. So what people are left with is, and in their mind, you can't love me without accepting this about me. And it's because it's not just their sexual preference to them anymore. It's who I am. I'm born this way. So if you don't accept this about me, you don't accept me. Do you see how crafty that lie is? And you see how people get to that point? The truth is, you may very well struggle with same-sex attraction. There's a lot of people in this room that, that struggle with that. And I know that. I've talked with some of you about it. You can struggle with that. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that homosexual relationships, that bisexuality, it's all a corruption of God's gift of sex, which is for one man and one woman for life. Anything beyond that is a perversion of God's way. And nature itself bears that out. One of the most clear passages of scripture on this is Romans 1. And there's a lot of Christians today who are, who are caving left and right to the pressure from the world. And they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. They want to love people. So they do all these mental gymnastics around context just to twist enough scripture to, to make it fit so that we can be friendly with the right people and we can make this work just to fit in. And it's a massive mistake because it's not real love. It's forsaking the truth. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture that is undeniably clear on this and I invite you to read along with me. It's Romans, 12, uh, Romans chapter 1, excuse me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's clear. That's undeniable. And to skirt around that is really not love. That's the truth that you need to know. Now, even as Christians, it's our natural tendency to go the other way too, and demonize people who we feel like we can't persuade. Write them off as too far gone. But I need you to think, where would you be if God took that approach with you? One of the themes that we've been seeing again and again from 1 Peter is that we are saved by grace through faith. We didn't earn our salvation. We deserve the opposite. We deserve the wrath of God. And you're not sitting here today in church as a Christian because there's something special about you. And God looked at you and saw something in you that was really great. You're the same as everyone else. We are saved by grace through faith. We're not inherently better than any other human. Your salvation has nothing to do with what you did. It's not about the positive qualities you possess that those people don't have. No, your salvation is completely and totally an act of God. It's by his mercy and grace that you are saved. So we have to remember that to truly love people and not mistreat them. Because when people don't have a safe space and they feel like they will be condemned if they share what they're really working through, they're never going to open up. They will hold on to those feelings that they're struggling with inside and never get help. So I want every person in this room this morning who struggles with same-sex attraction to know that we all struggle in various ways. And your temptation is no different than the temptation that other people have with greed or heterosexual lust. And this is a church that will love you no matter what you do no matter what your struggle is, because we know that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. There's some people that don't like that phrase, but it's a true phrase. Christ died for the ungodly. 
the love of God sent Jesus into this world. Jesus went to the cross because he loves those who are lost and blind. Christ died for the ungodly. God desires that all come to repentance. We just saw that in 2 Peter chapter 3 last week. God hates sin, but he loves people. And what's our role in that? Love God, love people, and hate your own sin. That's what we see in Scripture. Don't consume yourself with other people's sin. Love people and hate your own sin. That's how you avoid pride as well. Now, there's a lot more that could be said here. There's a lot of Christians who have bought hook, line, and sinker into the world's bait and switch, okay? And it is a bait and switch. To where they've made this issue about gay rights and not hurting people's feelings. And weak, shallow Christians who either haven't been taught this clearly or, and they don't want to ruffle feathers, or sometimes they've naively adopted this lazy idea and this mantra Let's love them. And of course, I stand for your rights. We have Christians who are losing the focus on what is really going on. The thing that sounds good on paper is deceptive. In June of 1969, when rioters threw bricks and tried to burn down the Stonewall Inn in New York City's Greenwich Village with police officers barricaded inside, even the most optimistic gay liberation proponent could have never dreamed that an illegally operated mafia-owned gay bar would eventually join the Statue of Liberty and the Grand Canyon on the select list of protected national monuments. But with Christians not speaking the truth in love and with the enemy getting really busy and getting crafty, they masqueraded gay liberation with pride. And LGBTQ advocates hit upon an ethical and a strategic coup. The rallying cry of pride transformed their quest for cultural-wide moral legitimacy, which is a very daunting task, into something else, into a personal plea for therapeutic well-being, which is a much easier goal. So the debate would not be a head-on, rational discussion about whether sexual revolution was acceptable by the standards of God's word, natural law, or Western civilized tradition. No, it's not about that. The debate wouldn't be about what's good for children, what's good for the public, even what's good for those drawn to that LGBT behavior. Instead, the pride mantra made the debate about feelings of personal acceptance. Changing the culture is hard work and it takes a long time. About 50 years, we've, as we've discovered. Convincing people to stop making other people feel bad, that's a lot easier, right? Do you see that? It's a much easier sell. So even today, pride can be difficult to refute on, on rational discussion and whether sexual revolution was acceptable by the standards of God's word. By marching for pride instead of marching for gay sex or sex change for minors, by, 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 by the bait and switch, the public isn't asked to affirm, the public is asked to affirm actions and appearances that they would often find distasteful. They are asked to affirm that people should not feel ashamed of themselves. 
And those who hold biblical standards of sex and sexuality are forced to play the entire game on their side of the 50-yard line. Do you really want people to feel bad about themselves? Do you want to make people suffer? Aren't you concerned about suicide and self-loathing? How can you be against anyone's pride if the alternative is violent, morbid, relentless shame? So Pride Month turns a moral argument about what the Bible has clear, unequivocal answers into a quest for personal self-acceptance, which is why many soft-hearted and weak-minded Christians line up for the parade just like everyone else. I know this is a heavy topic. I can feel it because you could hear a pin drop in the room right now. But so much more could be said about this. And I think the most helpful thing to do here will be to move on to the differences that jumped out to me when I read this passage. What are the differences between the world's version of pride and what I'm going to call today sojourner pride? The, the, the mantra and the truth for a Christian to rejoice in suffering. We're talking about that kind of pride. If you rejoice in suffering, that's the exact opposite of the people in the world who are angry and caustic and campaigning to end every single last slight or perceived struggle. The truth of the matter is that what, label, what people often label persecution and mistreatment nowadays, in reality, isn't persecution at all. The tables have completely turned, and the people who are looked down on and mistreated and called bigots are believers who refuse to wear the rainbow badge on their uniform. The people who are losing their jobs and income are the people who simply don't celebrate pride that goes against their convictions. But as Christians, we can't retaliate either. We can't play that game. The world has done that. They are doing that. They are lashing out. There's blowback about all of that. But we must rejoice in suffering. So here's the difference. First of all, the world's pride is centered on yourself. Sojourner pride. The pride that, that we see in Christ, that Peter's talking about throughout this letter, looks to others. Think about that for a second. I'm proud of my dad. You know, if, if I'm proud of someone else, that's usually a good thing. And I'm, I'm proud of my dad because he is a good man. He's been a pastor most of his life. When I was born in Richland Center, Wisconsin, he was pastoring a tiny little church in the middle of nowhere. He had just finished college, and he was, he was preaching. He was a pastor. And then my sister, when she was born, my, my mom had a lot of health complications. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, get a reset, get her health back. And he did appraising, you know, real estate appraising to help the family, you know, to support the family. And, and eventually he got back into the ministry. And we moved to Hartford, Connecticut, and he became a youth pastor. And it was a really high cost of living. The youth pastor salary wasn't very big. So he mopped floors at grocery stores at night. He tossed papers and had a paper route. He sold baseball cards and basketball cards as part of his hobby to make more money. He, did, he sacrificed over and over again. I love my dad. I look at my dad as a father who made sacrifices, who is generous, who is gracious. Of course he's not perfect, but he taught me truth. 
We had a lot of man-to-man conversations. Every little boy needs a dad like my dad. And I'm thankful, I'm proud of my dad. Being proud of someone else doing something is a great thing. Being proud of yourself and focusing it all on you, not a great thing. It's actually harmful and destructive. As Christians, we have to know that all of our gifts and talents come from God. And if we take pride in ourselves, we've put the focus and the emphasis on the wrong place. I'm proud of my wife Julie's awesome business. She designed a coffee shop. And then it's open now, and it's incredible. It's the aesthetic. She did the interior design of that, and it's gorgeous. When I actually look to others, and I'm proud of them, and I point that out, and I edify them, that does good. That builds each other up. So this is the other one. It's close, but it's slightly different. The world's pride elevates yourself. Yeah, look at me. And you puff yourself up. Sojourner pride edifies others. Look at this amazing job that my wife is doing. She's using her God-given talent to make this world and this community a more beautiful place. I'm edifying her. She's edifying the whole community. There's nothing wrong with having pride in that. Thirdly, the world's pride attempts to fit in. Sojourner pride is content with being an outsider. You see how opposite that is from the Pride Month that the world is celebrating this June? They are working overtime to normalize something that isn't natural. And they have successfully desensitized a lot of people. I remember the very first time my mom and dad told me about homosexuality. And just the thought of it disgusted me. Does that make me homophobic? No, no, not at all. That's normal for anyone who hasn't been intentionally groomed or brainwashed from a young age. Anyone who isn't desensitized to it has the exact same feelings. You have to teach kids that that is normal. And, it's, and, it's, and even then it can be confusing because deep down we all know that there's something inherently off with queer behavior. It's just that no one wants to admit that anymore. Even people who are living a homosexual lifestyle know deep down, this is queer. This is not natural. And they have to go on the offensive to normalize it. There's even a rift in the LGBTQ movement. The lesbians and the gays have a side that is in contradiction to the trans side. Think about that. For the lesbians and the gays, their rallying cry now is, I am born this way. This is not something I can choose, right? The trans world says the complete opposite. They say you can choose. They throw out science completely on how you were born. We're, we could go on and on about all that. We're not going to go any further with that today. But fundamentally, they are saying two different things. It's because they don't have truth on their side. And they are in error. And they contradict one another. The world is trying really, really hard to force you to accept their lifestyle that is completely opposite of the truth. And this is, this is just slams into the face of sojourner pride. In Christ, this is what Peter's been saying for weeks. Be content with being the outsider. 
You were a chosen sojourner. This world is not your home. You were a stranger, an alien to the ways of this world. You don't think like them. You don't talk like them because you have a different reason to live. And your motives are for God's glory, not your own. So instead of seeking legitimacy and acceptance, you have confident assurance in Christ. You know who you are, and you don't need anyone to affirm that because you know God, and he's given you a new heart. And there's no inserting yourself in your beliefs and opinions on others. Instead, there's a gracious invitation. I want you to have what I have. I need to share this with you. I want you to know this. This is redeeming. It restored me. Jesus has taken away my guilt and my shame. Come and see the good news. Sharing your testimony of how God has, has changed the way you think and the way you live and the way you feel. He's removed your shame. You don't have to force anyone to accept it. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's under the blood. I was lost and blind and now I see. I understood why I thought that way. It was because I was pursuing empty promises. One empty promise after the next. When you share that with people, you're not forcing anything on them. You're extending an invitation because you have a living hope and you are anxiously awaiting future glory. And if they don't accept me, that's okay because they didn't accept my savior Jesus either. And they're not really rejecting me, they're actually rejecting Jesus. I also know I can't change their heart. Only Jesus can change their heart. Just like only Jesus can save you. So you give a gracious invitation. And there's one more parallel. The world's pride receives the glory. Sojourner pride gratefully gives God the glory. My life isn't really centered on me and my pursuits anymore. In Christ, I'm overwhelmed with the mission that he has given me. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm losing my old life to find true life that is better than I could have ever imagined. As Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Charlotte, recently wrote, if you need the worlds of sports, entertainment, education, media, and government to celebrate your sexuality in order to feel proud, Maybe your conscience is trying to tell you something. Might it be that deep down behind the torrent of rainbow flags and the blitz of billionaire sponsors, God is speaking to us a different word? Maybe the perversity of the sexual revolution is a desperate attempt to convince us all that darkness is really light and that the unnatural is natural. Maybe we need the noise of a thousand parades to silence our collective memory of 2,000 years of Christian history in the West. If it takes the entire world marching in unison to salve the guilty conscience, perhaps pride is just a pretense. So here's the thing. Pride is not the only antidote to shame. There are other alternatives. Repentance. Surrender to the will of your Father. Obedience to your Creator, the one who created you in the way this world works. 
There's such a thing as calling a spade a spade and being true to God's beautiful gift of sex. There's a way that is twisted and different that leads to disease and doesn't produce offspring. And then there's God's beautiful, harmonious coming together of a man and woman. We have to remember that. But I want to emphasize to you that it's not unloving to tell someone the truth. It never is. And I hope you can see my heart here this morning. I know this is an unpopular topic to talk about. I'm doing this because I love this church. And I want you to know the truth. And I want us to embrace the truth. And I want us not to live in fear of, misple- of displeasing people. You can never go wrong with sharing the truth in love. It isn't unloving to tell someone the truth. And it is unloving to tell someone a lie because it will temporarily make them feel good and in the end destroy them. Sojourner pride entrusts your life to a faithful creator in the midst of present suffering. There's the main point of this passage again, which I know we, I I warned you, right? We were going to go a different direction. But that's the main point here. And unlike the modern pride movement, it takes God-given boldness to come out and say the difficult thing that someone doesn't want to hear. There are people in this room who, just like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, formerly lived a homosexual lifestyle. And I've talked to a lot of people, friends of mine over the years, who have experienced victory over these temptations. And they found out, you know what, that wasn't my identity. That was my my fallen passion. It was a sinful desire that was actually wrong. And for all of you who are still in the heat of the battle today, I want you to know this is a church that loves you. This is a church that seeks to share the truth with you, to help you. We're we're not going to ever throw you out or judge you. We're going to do everything we can to help you because we want you to thrive and to live your best life for God. And you can't do that alone. If you're living a lie and pushing back on the plan God has for your life, you're never going to reach the potential and the fullness of joy that God has for you. There's a lot of people who have believed the lie and they think that their homosexual marriage is going to be what they always waited for. Now that they have that, they will have peace again. Those very same people are going to be hurt and broken and sad in a few years when they find out that that wasn't the answer I was looking for. Because the answer is Jesus. And we need to be there to give them Jesus. The Christian sojourner, here you go. Just write this down. The Christian sojourner celebrates the opposite of Pride Month. We celebrate humility, grace, and the lavish kindness of God. We celebrate mercy to miserable sinners like us. We live in gratitude, not in pride. Do you see the difference? One way to deal with shame is to convince yourself it shouldn't be there. The other way is to simply lay it at the foot of the cross. 
Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and there is transformation. Would you stand up with me? We're going to sing in a second about our Savior, how he's done everything for us. We simply come to him with a prayer of repentance, and he does the rest. And I know right now you may really be feeling it. You may be torn because what I've just showed you from God's word and what I've talked about from Romans 1 and this whole parallel dichotomy of the world's pride and sojourner pride, it is just so foreign to everything else the world is shouting at you. But in love, I'm just giving you the truth that I know your heart desperately craves. And no matter what your struggle is, whether it is same-sex attraction, whether it is pride or greed, whatever kind of lust it is, it does not matter. Whatever your sin is, you can find forgiveness and transformation at the cross of Jesus Christ. As we sing, I want you to pray to God about whatever it is that you're struggling with. I want you to surrender that over to God. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.